Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and you'll be hearing from Bob McCormick. Bob's an orthopedic surgeon, but before that, he was an elite runner in the 800 and 1500 metres. He is part of the University of British Columbia, and he's managed some very impressive randomised control trials across orthopedic units in Canada, and he's very well internationally recognised as a leader in sports orthopedics. With the specific Olympics, he, his first Olympics as a team doctor was in Sydney 2000. He's been Chief Medical Officer in Canada since 2004. He works with Canadian football with the BC Lions. This podcast arises out of a fantastic session that Bob McCormack did at the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine in Quebec City. Nick Matardi, another big name in orthopaedics, was part of that session. And we're just going to ask Bob to give us the cut-down version, the best of these uh, shoulder issues, um, and we're going to begin with shoulder dislocation. Bob, thanks for being on the call this morning. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So our listeners love to listen to these in the, in the car, go to work or in the gym, and uh, we want to get to the gun fact. So we're talking about shoulder dislocation, and why is that a big issue in orthopedics? You know, haven't we sorted that out after thousands of years of shoulder dislocations? Well, I think it's really a matter of there's some evolving concepts, some new concepts. It's it's a very common injury. It's well known to everyone who's looking after uh, teams and uh, athletic individuals. Certainly the most common form of shoulder instability, far and away the most common. And, and the, the real issue is that people who are involved in sports are the young people where the recurrence rate is very high. And someone who's clearly immature, it's been estimated that greater than 90% are going to be have recurrent shoulder dislocations. Uh, once you get over age 40, that's less of an issue. It's probably more the rotator cuff. But in the group that we're dealing with active people in high-risk sports where their speed, um, collision or contact, where they're in at-risk positions for that anterior instability, there's a pretty high chance they're going to end up with recurring problems. And that means not only lost time from sport, but lost time from work, uh, decreased performance, and that can have a lot of direct and indirect costs uh, to the athlete and, and, and to the team. And superimposed on that, if you have one uh, compromised joint, you're even at perhaps increased risk, or one can make the argument, you're at increased risk for other injuries or um, or problems. And so it, the challenge becomes that a young athletic individual in a high-risk sport, when they have a shoulder dislocation, most of them end up having to alter their lifestyle and it, and have a reduced quality of life. And what are some numbers on this, Bob? If folks in the clinics are trying to calculate the risks, what are some numbers that come to mind? Well, we, we often talk about that, uh, as I mentioned, if someone's young, the, the recurrence rate can be exceptionally high, over 90%. But there's been systematic reviews that have suggested that overall, the risk of recurrent stability is in the range of two-thirds to 70% of people. Um, if you are in a sport that is a collision sport, and the classic would be North American football, the risks are higher. If you're at high, uh, high speeds are involved, um, uh, perhaps uh, a ski racer where they can catch a pole and, or get their arm caught on a branch or a fence while they're racing, uh, again, there isn't time for the body to react to that stress, uh, to, for the muscles to protect the joint and uh, instability is a higher risk. The reason it becomes the recurrence rates are so high is that the essential lesion, or the most, almost always, greater than 95% of cases, 
the glenohumeral ligaments are pulled off of the glenoid itself, and that's the Bankart lesion, or in some places in the literature is referred to as a Perthes lesion. And that uh, does not heal well, and so the torn and, and avulsed glenohumeral ligaments mean that you have reduced stability. Now, that can be potentiated if there's a bony injury on the side of the glenoid, and I usually explain to patients that the glenoid or socket is like a golf tee, and if you break off part of the golf tee, the ball is not going to sit in the golf tee as well or be as stable. And also, if there's injuries on the, on the humeral side, the Hill-Sachs lesion, then the the uh, that will lever the head out, and and so that increases the risk of recurrences of instability. So all of those add up for it to be uh, a challenge for athletes. So then, Bob, if I was coming to see you with an injury and will put me down in the 25-year-old uh, age just for the dream for the moment, then what evidence, and if I was a sceptical kind of professor guy going, you know, what is, what's the evidence for the surgery versus the non-surgery? What would you tell me? Well, I, I will back up just a sec and say that uh, the standard approach has been to reduce it, rehab somebody, and accept the risks of recurrence and operate, stabilize the shoulder surgically when the, the athlete or patient is basically fed up enough that the recurrence of instability or the diminution of their, their function. But over the last um, 15 or so years, there's been a few studies, a few high-level prospective randomized trials that have looked at whether or not there's a role for earlier intervention. So people like Acero and his group at, uh, in, the, in the military academy, uh, Kirkley and a Canadian group, um, Batani, a, 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 again, another American, they've all sort of looked at, does it make sense if we know there's a high recurrence rate to intervene early and operate on that first-time shoulder dislocation? And it's interesting that consistently all of these studies that were prospective studies show that the patients did better if they were operated on after their first-time dislocation. So the Cochrane group actually pulled all this data and showed a significant risk reduction. The relative risk reduction was, was about, um, oh, the number needed to treat was, was five, which is pretty low, actually, when you look at, at studies. And so what impresses me is the Cochrane group is a pretty tough group to satisfy. They're the same people who say there's no evidence to support uh, spinal surgery. There's no evidence to support doing an arthroscopic meniscectomy. Um, they, they, they are, um, um, they have high standards and they're, when they looked at the evidence and pulled it using these uh, very rigid, uh, and rigorous standards, they came up with a statement that the evidence supports primary surgery for young adults, particularly males engaged in demanding physical activities is warranted. Uh, the, the results are better. Thanks, Bob. And I've got the benefit of your slides in front of me. So that systematic review showed a 20% risk reduction, right? So you're saying you need about five people to, to reduce that? Um, I, yeah, they showed um, a significant risk reduction at about 20%. And I, my understanding is that that was sort of the, the number needed to treat would be five. Okay. And that's something folks can share with their colleagues if with the patients, if the patient's deciding or not, but that seems a very, very reasonable approach. And that's predicated on having changes on MRI, Bob, or just in anyone? Well, the outcomes they looked at, the primary outcomes in all of those studies were whether the risk of re-dislocation, so um, 
a repeat injury um, or, or instability. And the thing, the, the number needed to treat of five doesn't sound like a lot, but actually in, in trials, that's a, that's a pretty low number. And um, if you particularly then tease out, this, most of those studies were done on people across the board. If you tease out the people who are high risk, it's probably less than that. And, and layered on top of that is those studies were done 15 years ago. And there's been a lot of evolution in terms of our surgical techniques. The, the techniques that were done in those trials have largely been abandoned because they were non-anatomic. Uh, we didn't have the instrumentation we do uh, now to perform these techniques and, and restore the normal anatomy um, arthroscopically. Um, we really, I think, the orthopedic community feels that we do a much better job technically of restoring normal anatomy and shoulder instability than we did back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. So one can expect that in actual fact we can do better with surgery than we did with the old Casperi techniques and Shurtax and things that have actually since been abandoned. Okay, and in terms of um, imaging, if someone does first-time dislocation, so a sports physician or a sports physio is involved in management and they're getting imaging up front, um, what should they look for? Well, uh, start with the plane radiographs, uh, and the key there is to not forget to get the axillary view. If you're going to get one view, get the axillary view. And sometimes uh, your friendly radiology technician will say, oh, they're too uncomfortable to do an axillary view. And it can virtually always be done fairly easily. So insist on that. Um, a true AP of the glenohumeral joint um, is also helpful because what you want to do is look at the glenoid to see if there's a bony injury. And rotational views can help sort out whether there's a Hillsax lesion or a striker notch view. Um, and if you see that there's a bony injury, either a Hillsax or glenoid, and you think it's significant, a CT scan is the best way to image the bone stock. The MRI can be helpful, but it's not usually necessary. You don't need it to make the diagnosis because you know they've dislocated. The history is a, a key point there. You don't know it to, you don't need an MRI to make the diagnosis of a bank heart lesion. You know it's there in 97% of patients. And so that's not going to be what determines your treatment. Um, if you have concerns about the rotator cuff, either because of the magnitude of the force involved or the fact that it's an older patient, an MRI or ultrasound can be very helpful to visualize the, the, the cuff and make sure that it's intact. But the first step really are plain radiographs, a good quality x-ray of the glenohumeral joint, not an AP of the chest, but an AP of the glenohumeral joint, a good axillary view, and a lateral scap interview. And Bob, as we get towards the end of this one, um, what about the stabilization? What sort of post-operative um, management um, would the physios and doctors need to be aware of? So post-operatively, it, it, um, it, it's evolving a bit, and it varies from surgeon to surgeon, so you probably need to check with the surgeon that you're um, working with because it can depend on the quality of the repair or the, or the tissues. Um, the other things that may be going on inside the joint, like if there is a bit of a compromise in the glenoid or a hill sacs lesion, someone may choose to go a little slower. might go a little slower if there's someone with multidirectional instability than somebody with a unidirectional traumatic anterior dislocation. 
But in, in general terms, it will be a short period of protection to let the tissues start to heal. And then working on range of motion, probably trying to avoid stressed abduction, external rotation, things that are going to put a lot of stress on your repair. Um, in the, it is the repair of those antero-inferior glenohumeral ligaments that attach to the labrum and that quadrant of the glenoid. It, you don't want to stress that repair until it's had enough time to get strong enough, really. So uh, that's many more out to more six weeks before you're starting to stress your repair. And it's probably closer to, uh, depending who you talk to, four to six months before they get back to high-risk activities. Um, it depends on the sport. A collision sport like uh North American football or hockey here in particular in Canada, that's higher risk than somebody who's a cyclist and getting back on their bike, obviously, or uh, a runner. Um, so, yeah, it is individualized, I guess is a short answer. Yeah, and just to finish with a, a case, there was a prominent one in Vancouver. We don't have to give any names, but you were involved in a shoulder instability, recurrent instability case last season. So what were the take-home messages for clinicians you know, learning from that case? Because it sounded like there was a lot of force on the shoulder. <laughs> well, in the, the, um, the, the challenging cases are the ones where it's a throwing athlete because uh, if, you need to, if you need to maintain a full range of motion to allow somebody a normal throwing Mechanism. They have to have full abduction, external rotation. They have to have full mobility in the shoulder to be able to throw effectively. And that makes it a challenge if the problem is instability. If you tighten them up just a little bit too much, they no longer can do their job as a throwing athlete. If, uh, by the same token, if that increases the risks of having recurrence of instability. So those are the real challenging ones. Somebody who's a baseball pitcher or a football North American football quarterback that has to have absolutely full range of motion, almost hyper abduction, external rotation to effectively throw. Now they have instability in a collision sport. Uh, how do you balance the needs for stability and mobility? And, and sometimes that it's a, it's a very narrow window um, that you have to give them function and avoid recurrence. Nice work, Bob. And good illustration for young doctors about not giving away patient confidentiality while on podcasts. Fantastic. Um, last one, if it happens during the season, a lot of team clinicians on the calls, can you get through the season? I think most clinicians would uh, do that. They would uh, reduce the person, sorry, reduce the shoulder, um, rehab them so that they're functional, and then try and protect them, whether it be with one of those uh, shoulder braces that just limits abduction, external rotation, or making some adjustment to their uh, their shoulder pads, uh, to, again, to limit range a little bit. And the evidence is not high quality, but suggests that a high percentage of people can return to sport in the same season. You'd have to explain to the patient that there's a small risk of further injury, but it turns out statistically it's not all that high. And what I will do is, is talk to them about uh, perhaps addressing their shoulder instability at the end of the season um, because that's when they have that time to recover. The, the key part of the season for them is the mid-season through to the playoffs, the latter half of the season. 
And if we do something right at the end of the season, they have the off-season to recover and rehab. They may have a little bit of delayed return the following season, but they hopefully don't miss it in, in an entire year. Uh, so that's a reasonable approach, but the person does have to accept the fact that there is the risk that they have recurrent instability, and with every episode of dislocation, there's a chance of more damage to the articular cartilage, to the bone, and to the rotator cuff. Thanks, Bob. We'll leave it there on shoulder dislocation. You've been listening to Bob McCormack, who's a renowned educator, a tremendous contributor to the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine and Orthopaedics in Sports Medicine internationally. And you can follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for regular updates to various resources in sports medicine. Thanks for listening.